all at once there's a natural argument that no, we are bound together, you know, mm-hmm. as a human race. Mm-hmm. But clearly these bonds aren't affected naturally. That requires actual work and activity and sensibility. to What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Gil. Hello. Lillian. Hey, guys. And Owen. What's good? Today, we are discussing David Walker's 1830 edition of An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, usually shortened to David Walker's Appeal. And we read this alongside Melvin Rogers' 2015 article called David Walker and the Political Power of the Appeal, which you should definitely check out if you want to learn more about how to read David Walker. But for our listeners who might not be familiar with David Walker, I'm going to give you a little bit of a historical background and what the appeal is doing. David Walker, he was an abolitionist and a writer born in 1796, and he died in 1830, about 30 years before the American Civil War. His father was enslaved, but his mother was a free black, so Walker himself was free, given that the United States followed the law or legal doctrine in Latin, partus sequitur ventrum, which literally means that which is born follows the womb. In other words, the condition of the mother and not the father was passed down to the child. I don't want to spend too much time on this in in the beginning here, but so um, our listeners understand what what this means, why Walker was free even though his his father was enslaved, is that um, this legal custom effectively created two separate legal and social regimes between whites and blacks. Whereas inheritance was legally codified as following the law of the father, insofar as family names and property were usually derived from the paternal side, heredity of status and race followed the line of the mother. So to get us going, I will say a bit about the distinction I think is at play in Walker's appeal between inheritance and heredity. David Walker's text, The Appeal, is an abolitionist text. It is arguing that black people are already citizens and thus slavery is unjust. It is not insignificant that he addresses blacks as citizens because this shows that he proceeded with the assumption that blacks already have civil and human standing in this world. We can, of course, uh, as we talk about this, get into the normative foundations upon which Walker derives this assumption, and I believe there are two normative sources, theological and political, and they are a bit in tension. I believe he does draw on the Republican tradition, but he also is drawing upon the natural rights tradition insofar as we are creatures of God, we are endowed with certain rights that cannot be infringed upon. But... This use of referring to blacks as citizens is not an unreflective uh, model of rhetoric in the African-American political tradition. For instance, Martin Delaney, who comes some years after Walker, actually insists that blacks are not citizens of the United States because they lack their own nation and state. 
So what Walker is doing to get back to the distinction I, I mentioned between inheritance and heredity is that he's laying claim to a political inheritance of Republican citizenship against the hereditary discourses of biological inferiority or the notion that black people are natural slaves. The appeal was circulated through black communication networks up and down the East Coast of the United States by black seafarers, for instance, and some white seafarers as well. This reflects the creation and existence of a black public sphere and how technological changes such as newspapers and the printing press modulated political activity in this era. For instance, there were incredible anxieties around the spreading of the news of the Haitian Revolution and the problem of blacks coming from the Caribbean basically saying, hey, you'll know we're getting up to some stuff over there. And so I want this to reflect that, you know, um, in the African-American political tradition, it wasn't only the substance of one's ideas, but how to disseminate these ideas, how to um, create a public sphere in which these things can be debated, but also so that one can use their own judgment. And so Walker, for his part, was part of one of the first Black-owned newspapers called Freedom's Journal. To get this kind of going, uh, I wanted to pick out one thing that I think is interesting that we can think through philosophically with Walker. It's that he constantly refers to enslaving whites as natural enemies. Now, Walker's view is that slavery is contrary to human nature and the principle of, of non-domination. Slavery being contrary to nature means that for Walker, American slavery is actually a constant state of war. He is explicitly contesting the, uh, the use of natural history by one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, and more broadly, sort of nascent scientific racism. This confrontation he's setting up between natural history and political history, I would argue uh, that Walker is showing that the introduction of race into Western political formations encourages the blurring of the lines between natural history and political history, between heredity and inheritance. And thus, Walker's appeal is part of an attempt to inherit a Western political tradition against the sort of submission to um, natural racial inferiority. And so my point here, and I'll hand it over to you all, is you know, I think it's dangerous when politics and natural history start to mix. And Walker, I think, is trying to separate Separate those out. And you know, if politics is a sphere of human activity, natural history isn't about human activity, it is simply what is um, put upon you, done to you. And Walker's appeal is an attempt to prize that apart and create the, a political sphere that is divested of the vagaries of natural history, hereditary and science, etc. Yeah, I'm curious what you make of that that term natural enemies and the work that natural is doing there. Because I think my, my initial instinct is to read it in a bit of a deflationary way. Like it's like your, you know, your obvious enemies, like know who you should naturally, you know, given the circumstances and given your alignment or uh, antagonistic interests, who your obvious enemies would be and obvious allies. But do you think there's a stronger, you know, more work that natural is doing there when he talks about like, you know, the natural enemies of the oppressed? Yeah, so um, you know, I'll just I'll make this quick. So you know, even though I think he's trying to divest natural history out, he does want to bring theological history in. So that's why I think that there are two source normative foundations for Walker's argument against slavery. Um, I would love to talk about the Republican tradition that I think he's very clearly drawing upon. He's very interested in that. But you know, the natural law tradition that I was mentioning is he understands that since we are all children of God, that means we are as a fact, 
something that we cannot change. We are part of the same human family. And any, any sort of practices that tries to either disregard that, to annihilate that, to, and what he thinks that, you know, black people are um, specifically debased and wretched is the word he loves to say is because it has erected this ideological discourse that black people are not a part mm -hmm. of the human family. And so the natural enemies is that they are enemies against a theological understanding of human nature that is mm -hmm. not about natural history and sort of evolution evolutionary branches of genus. That's actually what I think he's because he constantly says it, and I think it's more than just pragmatic. He what does want sense. to say that slavery is deeply unnatural, which is an argument against even some discourses today, which is like all throughout human history, there's been slavery, which seems to be the implicit argument is that there's something natural about this form mm -hmm. of domination. And I don't think Walker holds that view at all. Some of what he's doing when he's comparing slavery to even slavery in the Bible is he's saying this is an unnatural outgrowth of even those practices, that this doesn't um, actually follow from the responsibilities and uh, normative capacities that he believes his public holds. Yeah, I was thinking, I think that that's really useful to, to situate it in the context of natural rights, because, yeah, I think we can get to the republicanism stuff later, but I, I think that kind of theological intervention and I too was wondering how those parts of the appeal work together because there's one surface level reading where he's using the word natural in maybe a more straightforward way where one talks about natural enemies and you could read it and think and I imagine that some of the like paranoid white readers of the time would have read it in this way where those fears of the constantly um, deferred race war are emerging here like we like we have a natural justification for slavery and then they're going to turn it around on us and these are natural enemies um, and so I can understand like why that would have evoked so much fear and anxiety around, especially since he's, I hope we talk about the questions about, you know, who the appeal is for as well, how it was trying to create the public you were talking about, Will. But I do think it makes more sense to put it the other way, the way you did, just did, because I think if you're trying to make a political appeal, and Melvin Rogers put it in a really helpful way in the essay that we read, which kind of contextualized it within the broader tradition of Americans making appeals. Like imagine making an appeal in which you're like, I'm going to start a race war being like a, a black guy in the early 19th century. Like it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So like, then that makes me be like, okay, we got to go. <laughs> Pragmatically. Doesn't sound good. Oh my God. Like y'all know you're outnumbered by the millions, right? I'm just like checking to make sure. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I feel like that's a really helpful place to start with, like the theological um, arguments, and then we can probably build to the Republican ones too. Yeah, I thought that like the so the the preamble. It's first of all his rhetorical power and style is staggering. It's like incredible, like how effective he is as like you know in the use of language. Um, but like one of the things that comes up repeatedly, thinking about the sort of like theological underpinning of what's count, what's counting here as unnatural in the natural enemy is like he's constantly asking like if god he says this is in the preamble if god gives peace and tranquility to tyrants right and lets them you know inflict such suffering on us would that be a god of justice right and so like there's this and this is like a refrain it was very powerful how like we regularly right like if god were to allow the slavers to enjoy peace under these conditions and for us to suffer such barbarity and indignity like if that if that's a god it's not a god worth taking seriously yeah. or, or you know worshiping mm -hmm. um but and so like he and he says you know 
yeah, I really want want to hear more of your thoughts, Will, about like his his commitments in this regard, because he's he's very clearly like using this as like a, a a screw to turn, right? He's like, I'm convinced that you know the Christian God is the God of justice, right? Like I I believe, right? And so this means that consequently that there are like actions that need to be taken. Um, that the, you know something has to give here. Uh, like the rhetorical form of the question is like, if this is true, doesn't this call into question God's goodness? And then he says, no, it does not. Right. This is like a, a really cool flip. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to say a little bit about this in my introduction, but I wanted to jump into it. Um, so there are actually important um, legacies to this text. And one person who I hope we'll, we'll do an episode on later, Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass employs this sort of mode of argumentation, though. I do think that Frederick Douglass is in, in important ways distinct from David Walker. But you're right. The screw to turn comes up in What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, where Douglass mm-hmm. you know, starts yeah. talking about the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers, and then he starts saying, so if you buy those premises, you know what conclusion you are drawn right. to. He even does um, the, the form of the trick, at least Douglas doesn't what to the slaves of the 4th of July is, you know, yeah, so either, you know, black slaves are unthinking brutes who have, you know, no rights to citizenship, then you shouldn't care about what people write about slaves. You shouldn't worry about them reading those. You shouldn't mm-hmm. even worry about passing laws against them reading or you think that they do have the capacity for judgment and rationality. And I thought those were the hallmarkers of humanity. And if that's the case, then you must be led down this path. And so there's this interesting play that Walker is doing. And you know, I could go on and on about the history. Some read them as you know, sort of proto-form of black nationalism. Sure, that might be there, but rhetorically, he does draw upon the you know the founding revolutions at least of the United States. He makes reference to the Haitian Revolution. He makes reference to the French Revolution. So, in other ways, he takes himself to be a part of modernity and the Enlightenment. And says so. If these are your principles, this is the action that you must be led to. And holding those kind of ideas and tensions seems to be part of you know, what Walker is trying to do, which is create a different type of civic community. I, I, I would argue he's trying to argue for a refounding of the American Republic and not you know, like its abolition as such. I was thinking about Douglas also in the famous What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, but I was also thinking about one essay when he, the Is It Right and Wise to Kill a uh, Kidnapper? Um, Mm. and there's this way in which, like the way that he creates this like deep, because these are all like speeches, they're all appeal, like that's the nature of the uh, appeal in written form. And I was just thinking that if you're going to make this kind of intervention in the world, then you have to assume that the public that you are speaking to is going to be receptive, both white and black, you know, so that, so first of all, you have to assume that black people are capable individuals who are able to come around to judgments about their circumstances, but you wouldn't try to stoke the kind of like fear or sense of hypocrisy and contradiction in the white audience either if you didn't think along the lines of natural rights that people were capable of coming to understand themselves however far far fetched so i feel like that deep theological commitment actually does a lot of work for the style of writing and the kind of intervention and it it does make me wonder about like the kind of interventions that we make today and like how similar or or different they are we tend to lean into like the lack of understanding or like the, the, the kind of the chasm among the incommensurability, us, the incommensurability. And it kind of seems like that when you read Walker's appeal, you're like, wow, natural enemies. But actually the subtext of it is the, 
it seems to be the opposite and and that needed to be the case for both pragmatic reasons but also for ideological reasons i mean i definitely think that's right but there, but there is that does need to be reconciled in a certain way or maybe i just don't see the reconciliation between that and the emphasis on the importance between distinguishing friends and enemies, right? Like he, when he, the way I read these, the first two articles, the first one seems to be, you know, this is what you all have done, right? This is how, the, this is the abject condition of slavery that you have created. And then like, don't be surprised that we are these wretched beings that you, you know, that you call us because this is the most wretched condition that's ever been created in human history. Even if you compare it to like Spartan or Roman or Egyptian slavery, none of them compare to, to this, you know, to the, to the condition. Just real quick also, it's really cool how widely read he is. Like, you know, you know yeah, I don't yeah, mean this yeah. in a derogatory it's way. Incredible. Like, okay, my dude's showing off a bit. Like, you know, especially in that historical <laughs> yeah. context, he's like, oh, you think I don't know about world history? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's every comparative possible. <laughs> yeah. No, it's amazing. And he goes into like a lot of detail about how like the Roman slave actually had it a lot better. And like Jefferson, you're an idiot if you think that the only thing that separates a slave in ancient Rome from a slave in America is their nature and not their condition. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's how I take the, the first article. And then the second article is more seems to be more like, OK, now is, is the question of us right? In, in his voice. Right. Like not the question of what these people have created, this system of slavery and the brutality and the wretchedness that it has created. But the question of us and the question of why it is that we haven't done anything about it yet and why we're not doing more about it. And, and, he, and he attributes it to ignorance. And when I first see, you know, when I first saw that that claim about ignorance, I thought he was going to talk about, you know, inequalities in the education system or something. And that, that comes up a little bit, but that's not really what for him, what at least mm -hmm. it seems to me ignorance is like ignorance seems to me seems to be the inability to distinguish who your friends and your enemies are and acting in a mm. servile way with people that like what basically would have you killed in a second. Right. And um, so I, I, I do think that cultivating that that sensitivity to who your your friends are, learning how to keep secrets, right? Learning how to how to build solidarity, learning how not to work what he calls like collaborating with tyrants just to get your belly full. Learning how to distinguish that friend and enemy. I, I'm curious to see what you how you guys think that that relates to the fact that this clearly is an appeal to a, a pretty broad swathe of the population. Yeah. So, you know, um, one thing I, I was, uh, again, going to say in the beginning that I think is really interesting about the appeal is, on the one hand, it does seem primarily directed towards, you know, other black people. But I think Melvin Rogers argues this. I think it's right that it's not only for, for black people. Mm -hmm. And the what Walker would have to assume in directing this appeal insofar as he is also talking to some white people is that he is assuming that, you know, they have the requisite um, epistemological and normative capacities to render a different judgment upon uh, this uh, political and social institution of slavery. And so I'm glad you brought up the fact that, yes, when I first read Article 2, I expected, yeah, so we're going to talk about what these schools are like. We're going to talk about mathematics mm -hmm. or something. And of course, you know, Walker's like, yes, no, we need that. But I think education for him is, you know, more about a sort of humanistic virtue. And I'm thinking back to our Machiavelli episode. Mm, it's about judgment in particular mm -hmm. political context so that you can shape the forces around you. That, you know, mm -hmm. you can learn and he, he spends pages making fun of a guy who's like, I know my son is my my black son is educated because his handwriting is as good as the white yeah. person's. And he's like, but can he make judgments, though? 
Can yeah. your son actually you know, know what you need to do given certain circumstances? And why I think judgment is so important for Walker, a political vice is a lack of judgment, not knowing what you should do when a situation arises. In the first article, he mentions like, you know, wait for the opening and then get yourself free. He does not counsel, yeah. you know, do things that are counterproductive, do things that you know that will fail. And so the harm of slavery isn't just that black people don't learn grammar, though he thinks that that's important. It's that it affects their political judgment of what they are due and what they will need to be done in order to get their just desserts. And I think relatedly, that must be also white people are lacking judgment insofar as they are judging this to be either a just institution or they're bringing in natural history when what we're talking about is political history. That's super interesting. One of the points that uh, Rogers makes in the article and which you brought up in your little introduction is, you know, the sort of paradoxical status of the appeal to uh, a citizen of color, like this sort of like impossible syntagm at the time, but like calling into existence the addressee by saying that like there's this reflexive appeal to those who are capable of this kind of political judgment that you're describing but also that the call is for them to develop that capacity right like the, the, like there's a, yeah. a the, there's a presupposition and also an ask that that be developed that that not be lay, allowed to lay fallow as it has manifestly been so i wanted to the 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 thing about exercising judgment what I felt really excited about reading the article on ignorance was that I thought it, yeah, it picked up on some of the themes from the Machiavelli episode and what you said, Gil, about like what happens when judgment is allowed to lay fallow. And this idea that like a republic is a place in which people are able to exercise judgments, like generally speaking, <laughs> they have to maintain the free society. And that's why we can't be free if we don't actively make judgments because then our capacities to make them lie fa fallow and then people can take advantage of us or they can use what he often says, take advantage of, sometimes he calls it the good nature of black people, but more often the, the ignorance and undue submissiveness that they perceive. So then there's this way in which the capacity to have a republic is not possible under these conditions. So what what really came out to me was there's this classic like master slave analogy in this case literal of like the republican framework, you know, from like the Roman Republic onward. And I think what's fascinating is like in the context of a slavery that's not just metaphorical like in the neoclassical republican tradition, but in the literal case, you get these like practical consequences that have to be understood because the public sphere it doesn't exist and you have to bring it into being. You have to create this sphere, but people aren't don't have the capacities to do it. So what do you do about that? concretely like this isn't a philosophical exercise but it actually like raises these philosophical questions that you wouldn't have gotten um under different circumstances so yeah yeah i just thought that was really interesting yeah i just want to build off that point real quick i keep coming back to the tension between the theological and the more political argument in walker is that even though he makes this theological argument you might expect him to say so so god will provide God will take care of it. And sometimes there is that. But then it's, you know, he, he insists that, no, we cannot expect God to simply grab us by our hair and free us. 
we have to do it ourselves. And I think this actually does come back to judgment, that if you aren't using your political judgment in terms of trying to figure out not just you know, how to get free, but I think the second article is really also about what it means to be free. That's why he has that constant refrain of look inside you and think, is this freedom and happiness? He goes like nothing against people who like you know, shine boots and you know, cut hair, but you know, being only limited to that, is that really freedom and happiness? And he's, he's arguing that people can come to be convinced that their conditions actually are happy conditions. And so what's strange about the theological argument is that even though he's using this to, to justify a sort of baseline premise of, of normative capacities and uh, knowledge capacities, he doesn't rely on the idea that God is the way towards political freedom. That requires politics. And it's as if like, all of a sudden, like, yo, God receives you in the background and says, well, you know it's okay because God says it's okay. You know, so it's like, yo, it's justified in that discourse, but no, this is going to have to be a political problem we resolve. And I actually do think that there's a tension between the theological argument and the political argument. And, you know, I, I think that's where it comes into tension with the agency of judgment in the Republic, that it has to be on us. Oh, okay. Does that help explain his like extreme anti-Catholicism, which comes up in a few places? I think what? that actually helps clarify. I didn't that even for me. pick up on that. Yeah, he's talking about Haiti at one point. He's talking about Haiti, and he's like, Haiti's you know the revolution they're doing. It's amazing. But then he says, however, they're still captured by that scourge of nations, the Catholic religion, and I hope and pray God that Haiti may yet rid herself of it and adopt instead the Protestant faith. I just yeah. had no idea what to make of that initially, but I think it might have something to do with this sort of um, relationship between like theology and politics that you were just describing, where in which it's not sola fide here, like it's not faith, like you got to do works. And, and also this sense that, you know, each of us has to be the judge for ourselves and not like sort of like falling back onto uh, ecclesiastical authority for interpretation of matters of, you know, what, what, what is and is not just and so on. Um, that, that just occurred to me that that actually falls into place a little bit. Yeah, At the time, he, I just thought it was funny because I like hearing people dunk on Catholics, but now it, now it actually <laughs> makes sense. If you try to link Protestantism and Republicanism, I'm out. Period. We're done. <laughs> uh, no, 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 we're done. The pot is over. I was going to say that I do think it's important with this concept of judgment to emphasize how much of a practical concept of judgment it is, right? Because I think sometimes when people hear judgment, they're thinking of, you know, just hone your cognitive reflective skills. But it's very clear, like, in his response to Jefferson, when he says, look, the only way, you know, he cites Jefferson saying, you know, that uh, the condition of slaves in America is a natural condition because, you know, because black people are naturally inferior in a way that the Roman slave wasn't naturally inferior. That was a problem of condition. So he's saying that, look, the only way, the only way that this can be refuted, right, the only way that Jefferson can be refuted is by proving him otherwise with your actions, right? So the only way, it's only by doing you have to basically show, I mean, he seems to, the, the parts that struck me the most of the appeal are the parts where he seems to be really struggling with this question of why do we as black Americans live in the most wretched condition as he has just described it in all of human history? Like literally the most, he says over and over again, right? That nobody has ever been this oppressed. This is the most oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so why, why is that? Well, again, part of it is, is the, the condition 
Part of it is that it's so much more extreme of a form of subjugation than he believes has ever been practiced in, um, in human history. Uh, but the, the other part of it is that we have to, like, there has to be a demonstration. Like, the, the part of the appeal yes. is to, like, go demonstrate it, like, with your, with your, you know, that level of practical judgment. Yeah, that's why he says, and I wondered what you all thought about, you know, oh, my boy has a bone to pick with Jefferson. Just oh, long yeah. block quotes. <laughs> oh, and he's God. like, yo, no, no, no. Yeah. We're reading notes on the state, uh, notes on Virginia or whatever it's called. Those are like the main footnotes. Like almost exactly. one of like, there's like three texts and like almost all of them are Jefferson. Well, he also like praises Jefferson. Jefferson like crazy. I think it's because he thinks Jefferson is like uniquely brilliant as a, as a thinker. And so he's like, look, this really brilliant person the most brilliant of all of these whites. You know what I mean? This is what he thinks about us. Like, he can this possibly be true? He does. Exactly. He says, he the, like, yeah. among better philosopher there barely has ever been or something like that. Which, I mean, I don't think I buy that, but... He also says <laughs> Jefferson is the greatest of all the whites, but then then calls the whites, like, the most wretched and abject set of beings that, you know, or it's the a, most devilish. It's a low and, It's yeah. a uh, low, yeah. What, it's what's called interesting negging. About, yeah, it's negging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Walker wanted to neg his way to freedom. And wow, my dude, it only took 30 uh, years after you died, but you did it. You did it. Uh, what's interesting about his engagement with Jefferson, though, is that, you know, he's like, you know, this guy is brilliant and all of that. But also his words have had these, you know, this sort of global effect on how people think about black people. But his, his point there also engaged with Jefferson is it doesn't matter how brilliant he is we have to also be the ones who write about our capacities. He has a line where he says, you know, it's important that we blacks do it ourselves. And what mm -hmm. this tells me is he is not looking for the abstract recognition of black people's humanity. Yes, he wants it, but it also needs to come from the, the earned judgment and self-recognition of black people themselves before the world. Like, you know, the world needs to witness you making these political judgments. And so Jefferson operates in a twofold way, I imagine. One, it's his way of seeding his way into the American foundation and saying, I I'm inheriting Jefferson, yet also critiquing it. And two, is to mm -hmm. dethrone Jefferson and say someone so brilliant still lacked certain political mm -hmm. judgment. That he lacked mm -hmm. an understanding, if I want to put in my own parlance, he, under, he lacked an understanding of, of the, the substance of the political by making the political into also a space of natural history where people are separated down to those who are free to make judgments and those who lack the capacities to make judgments. And so there's this strange, also Melvin Rogers calls it a call and response, but this is in a different way. There's a strange relationship he has to the American founding where he wants to call to it and he himself is the response to it. And he's saying this response is me exercising political judgment in the political sphere. And that is also what is necessary for there to be a really healthy republic that people know we are able to respond to the political tradition we've inherited. Why would it be political uh, argument that Jefferson can't exercise political judgment. Why wouldn't it be just an argument about moral hypocrisy? Yeah, I mean, I understand from Walker's Walker's position why he's exercising political judgment, but there is this I feel like part of the theological argument is also, you know, moral argument. There's like levels to what he's saying. But like I just when I think about what it is for like a ruling class person to exercise political judgment in the way that they need to. I'm like, he is exercising good political judgment. He's doing what he needs to do. But he's, has, he's certainly a moral hypocrite. Maybe, I don't know if this is like a, a 
profound question, but I just kind of thought, okay, but I don't know. I don't buy it. Like class, class society, you know, me, cold water, like seems like he's doing what he's doing for the right, the reasons he wants to do it. And he's justifying it. And yeah. This is why, like, you know, I, I love reading these figures from the past, but obviously how well you can transport them to the future will yeah. depend on, on your sort of taste. Well, I think it's because for Walker, morality or moral virtue and political virtue, they're supposed to be coincident for him. And so there, there is a moralization of politics, and that's when the theological is going it's, – it's a two-hander. That's when the theological leg of the argument is going to start doing the work that even if you could say given his class position, he was exercising good political judgment, we can still avail ourselves of a normative critique of Jefferson insofar as we can show that his moral judgmental capacities were distorted, brutalized, etc. And so if his moral habits – moral comportment, if you want to put it that way, are distorted, then we can understand why um, a political situation that I describe as a state of war grows out of those distorted moral habits of, of regard. Yeah, it might also be the case that like, there's the moral hypocrisy, obviously, but also just Jefferson's just wrong, right? Like in, in terms mm. that I think are not moral, actually. So like, for instance, you know, when I mean, the, there's the distinction that Owen brought up before, which I think is really helpful in revealing, right, the the way in which he sees the slaves, the slavery of of Roman antiquity, and it's like, oh well, that's not a natural difference; that's one of condition. And then he turns his eye towards chattel slavery in, of Africans and African Americans in the South, and he just ha- he just has the wrong take. He just is like, oh no, this this time it's about nature, and we can talk about like you know that this is the judgment that he would have to make. Right, like to your point, Lillian, in the interests of his position as a member of the ruling class, uh, the landed proper gentry, and so on. But just like you know, he talks about like he's like, oh, I'm just you know, I'm just doing like natural philosophy vis-a-vis the different species of man, and it's like, no, you're not. You are not doing that actually. Yeah, it is funny how ahistorical it is too. It's like, oh, well, how did they get here? Like, why are they in America? It's not some like natural reason why like those slaves exist there. The Middle Passage probably has something to do with some differences, you know. But also, furthermore, to keep pushing this, though, I think you know, Walker could. I, I don't think he avails himself of this. He could still have a route to a political critique because if for Walker slavery is unnatural, he also seems to understand that slavery actually tends to break apart. Um, republics, that it actually mm. is not in the interest of um, mm. of a healthy nice. and flourishing political sphere. And that's why you know, we were talking in the beginning. He, he mentioned Spain and Portugal, and it turns out Lillian informed us that not, not actually that much was happening in Spain, but he goes on this long tirade that like, and see, we're clearly seeing God's judgment tearing <laughs> this nation apart. Spain won't be here much longer. So, okay, so Walker missed the boat. Spain is still here. <laughs> <laughs> but his point that you know this creation of a state of war within the political sphere will only beget more and more violence, more and more dissension. That's why I mentioned that you know he's writing this only 30 years before the Civil War. In a sense, he is borne out, not because he is psychic or something, but because the problem of slavery was a huge political problem from the jump. It was never that like, you know, all the white people were like, yeah, this is great. This is completely tenable. Many, you know, people were struggling over what do we do with this, especially with the manifest contradiction, especially with the fact that these slaves are reading and learning. And then you add in the fact that there are some free blacks walking around talking about why are y'all still slaves? This 
is yo uh yo a recipe for disaster. And so yeah. I think yo he would say that slavery <laughs> is actually antithetical to a stable polity if that is what you you want. Yeah, he makes a he you know, says slavery makes whites fight each other in the end. And he actually gives like, you know, he gives the theological argument, but there's a materialist moment too, right? Where he's, where he's like, listen, where do you think all this wealth, like, what are they fighting over? All this wealth and all this crap that they've built up, like now they're all killing each other over it and they're using the wealth they, they acquired in this process and the barbarity they've acquired in the process to, you know, I did, there was almost a part of it that seemed to prefigure an argument that Du Bois makes in 1917 and then later Aimé Césaire in the fifties with the kind of boomerang effect on this is what slavery does to it's not good for white society either in the end. Like this is what it's gonna come back to barbarism, elements of the slave system you set up are gonna come back to divide and to well divide and ruin even the be the beneficiaries of that system at some point. Yeah, division is the name of the problem. I wonder like yeah. so I, I Can we talk about division about, and unity, yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about like going back to this question about what makes the slaver the natural enemy and like and it is it is like got like a theological normative ground, but like he always seems to suggest something about unity and like the true universality of humanity as being the goal, but also like the natural condition that's being upended somehow. So that like what's unnatural about these ways of behaving of these ways of acting is precisely it's it's division and it's like reproducing division, right? Or or sowing sowing disunity among a body i mean he says towards the end of the second um towards the end of the second article he says that your full glory as well as that of all the colored people under heaven shall never be fully consummated except by the entire emancipation of your enslaved brethren all over the world mm -hmm. right and then he says it is i believe the will of the lord that our greatest happiness shall consist in working for the salvation of our whole body right like this idea of like the the whole body of the human race in light of which right like yeah there's a moral case to be made against division but also it's just it's just unnatural in a in a in almost a non-moral in almost like a physical sense right like it seems like it's like there's like a like a a, a physical error is happening here so I, I hope this doesn't take us too far afield, but I know that this is a, a pet thing that I think, Ben, you all read the um, um, the Rogers article and Adolf Reed comes up. There's also what I love uh, that you can find in this historical text. There's also already a tension or a worry over a sort of presumed organic camaraderie and political companionship amongst blacks themselves. So remember that Walker is a free black. And so there, this is already a kind of cleavage, even within the so-called black community. And what you know, Walker's you know, trying to incite is a political judgment that sees you as part of one corporate body that you know he is worried about certain blacks who who might be nominally free and like well i got mine i think this is also this is pretty good for me and so he calls them know, the swell the swell bellies <laughs> the swell bellies yes and yeah. walker has no love for the swell bellies and so this is also an attempt to create bonds of solidarity that doesn't assume that they like, this is where I keep coming to the tension. You know, all at once, there's a natural argument that, no, we are bound together, you know, mm -hmm. as a human race. Mm -hmm. But clearly, these bonds aren't affected naturally. That requires actual work and activity and sensibility. And so, you know, what I also find interesting reading this text from the 1800s is, 
you also have you know, already have the problem of of black solidarity, a presumed um, cross cultural or cross status alliance, and seeing that it doesn't naturally work out that way. That you can have people who will he again Walker is vicious about who will sell out. Who collaborate? Yeah. Snitches. Who, He's yeah. very vicious. About he he does not like snitches. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so I also Which I think find has that an important very yeah, historical importance for organizing slave rebellions, right? Like at the moment, the primary way that that's envisioned and practiced is conspiracies, right? Conspiracies, and most most of them were suppressed. But I think there is you can sense the importance of that. Like you have to work with your co conspirators Basically, like you need solidarity with your co-conspirators, and you need to keep your mouth closed and never. Um, you know, curry favor with the tyrant by sharing secrets. There needs to be trust. Yeah. There needs to be trust. I also think it's important that that kind of worry comes out, like, because he's a northern free black, you know, he's writing in Boston. Um, and he's outraged for us evident and righteous reasons. Um, but there's all, but I think part of the worry that he has about the ignorance of even other free blacks or people who see reasons to collaborate is that he's, that's probably more evident to him in the North. Like there's this conversation that, um, I think, you know, people are aware of, of reconstructing this false image of even the, the Jim Crow South is like people all sharing the same condition. Of course, there are class differences. There always have been, but segregation creates, more of a, a material basis for racial solidarity, as did plantation slavery. But I think what it draws attention to is that even if that's true, there's always been this like geographic and political tension that has never not been there. And I do think that the way that we're taught about race politics, at least from a young age, I mean, I think people learn to think more critically about it as time goes on. But, you know, you kind of assume these solidarities and it's a way of actually kind of decomplexifying black political life and taking less seriously political differences than you would for other social groups and like that's what I take to be um Reed's concern anyway I mean I, I know he has political opinions about like what he thinks the basis of solidarity is completely but I feel like that's his critical view is that it's actually not taking seriously the variety of political arguments that would emerge because you assume that solidarity and then you do a disservice to what is actually going on and the thinkers themselves. That's how I interpret it yeah. anyway. No, I think that's right. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to avoid this question for too long, but I was wondering what you all thought about the role of violence in Walker's text. And so I don't mean that just be like rah, rah. It. Like it's a really complex question because even when Walker wrote this text, there were abolitionists and black people who were deeply unsettled by what he's talking about in Article 2, where he's like, you know, he, um, he, he, he spends a lot of time um, talking about this newspaper article where some slaves collaborated and they got themselves free and they killed most of the white people that were, you know, um, carting them. But one of the slaves, a black woman, saved one of the white people and then he went back, got his friends, and, you know, as most slave rebellions go, it didn't go well for anybody involved and all of that. And Walker, he is unbounded in his rage about you know Live the it. woman who helped the you know the white guy get away he's like no if you're gonna do it you do it all the way and so i bring that up because there were definitely free blacks also who read this and they were like what are you doing you know and there's a way that you can understand this as you know from a particular perspective of you know blacks who relatively again it's it's still 
pre-slavery South. It's not like, you know, dope as hell. But, you know, from your own perspective, your political judgment is things are going pretty all right with me. And so I'm choosing who my friends are in this is too radical. You know, what we need is, you know, some other form of more conciliatory politics, which definitely even existed before the abolition of slavery, sort of go slow method. And so this isn't about saying that Walker was right or not, but or at least not for me. You know, you all can take your bite at the app of what you think. But I think that, the, you know, Walker's really trying to take the, the view of the least favored and saying conciliation isn't going to help these people. What's going to be needed is a political judgment when violence might be necessary. And that might make my personal life more uncomfortable, uh, something that we haven't brought up that's a cool historical fact. This was um, interpreted as a seditious text, so laws were passed to kind of prevent its circulation. And I know Walker knows that if he ever found himself in the South after having written this, no. Yeah, he's not making it out. And so Walker is putting his skin in the game and saying, you know, no, 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 this is what needs to be said. And I think sometimes we get this romantic history of black political thought that they all agreed, they all knew what should be done. And the disagreements kind of happen in the post-civil rights era where things get, you know, murkier. But those tensions were always there. Could I? So I love this question. And I'm wondering if it helps shed light on I have a I have a hypothesis about how to answer it um, based on a quote. It's an odd quote. He's talking about these things, right, that you're describing, Will, like the need for there to be violence, that there will be this destruction. He says things like, yeah, these white people who want to, you know, hold slaves, like they'll get theirs. Right? They, 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 there's a reckoning coming. And he says, this is the quote, no doubt some may say that I write with a bad spirit and that I, being a black, wish these things, i.e. the destruction of the white world, to occur. But whether I write with a bad or a good spirit, I say if these things do not occur in their proper time, it is because the world in which we live does not exist, and we are deceived with regard to its existence. And I just found that so striking. And so I wonder if you all have thoughts about this idea of like the world not existing. Um, like which world is he talking about there? I think that there's like one potential like solution to this puzzle of how do we hold together these these universal sort of theological aspirations of of you know peace and love and also the necessity for violence and so forth is it is it because this world this deceptive world that looks like it exists but does not in fact is a world of of morals right is like a, a world in which there is any any thickness to the normative underpinnings of civil society like that's that's kind of how it struck me at least i'm wondering if you all had thoughts about that I think that's definitely what he means. I think, you know, he's basically making the wager. And this goes all the way back to what you were saying in the beginning. That, you know, I think the way that he's looking at violence is whether he's saying it's moral or not. I think, you know, he's like saying that it's not really about that. I'm actually trying to describe what would be necessary if it is true that we are human creatures with these, you know, normative capacities and these um, normative rights we are due. And that, you know, if it is the case that, you know, it turns out that this world can keep on rolling while this sort of barbarity is is occurring and no mm. sort of reaction comes forth, no sort of pushback or revolution. I do read him as saying then the, the moral world that we claim orders what we are doing that gives sensibility, it, it actually doesn't exist. That It turns mm. out it is all sort of brute force or pure contingency. And I think Walker is like saying, I can't even entertain that premise or else <laughs> none of what I am doing here makes sense. 
that right. there has to be a moral world that, you know, I would argue, I think, for Walker, envelops the political world such that it's not simply a play of pure forces of power, pure gambits, and um, pure randomness. So I'm, I have a, th- a question about the, the violence question. I was realizing that I have all these op- opinions about violence, but they're probably not actually rooted in the text at all because I'm somebody who doesn't notice claims like that all that much. And I realize that I'm, I'm just not the average reader that is struck by the claims about, about violence because I tend to be like very critical of like adventurism when it comes to violence. But I also tend to just like deflate the kind of moral worry about violence under these kinds of conditions. But I also understand that when black authors talk about violence, people get very preoccupied with, with, with this and they get preoccupied with this with Fanon most notably, but I think others as, as well. And so I actually just kind of want to, yeah, ask about the, the question, because in my opinion, it's like if you're writing in the early 19th century in the United States, the idea that the slave power is going to be defeated without violence or that it could be justified. I understand that this is an argument that for people at that time, um, they had to make in real time, but it just seems as a present day reader, I'm like, okay, well, obviously I like, you know, and so I'm wondering like where the question comes from, where the concern comes from, and then what Mm -hmm. salience that might have for, for contemporary readers. Like what's the, Mm. what's the worry then? And what's the worry now? Yeah, I, I, I agree there is that tendency to seize on the question of violence in black authors really often. And I think, I mean, so I think one of the ways to pose the question, some of the questions that are surrounding the question about violence, but maybe not make it about the violence per se, is to bring it back to the, the question of enmity, right? Because it seems like one of the things he's trying to, to drive home in, the, in his lament of people that do not judge correctly when violence is necessary Right, is that one has to recognize in politics like where the limits of dialogue and where the limits of, of being an inter- interlocutor, where those limits lie. And it seems like at a certain point he's, he's saying to exercise a good political judgment is to know when you're not dealing with a potential interlocutor. It doesn't mean you always use violence, right? He always says like when the conditions make it necessary and then once the act has started, right, then it's everything is fair game, right? Then you've got to do whatever whatever it takes, right? But it seems like the, the, what I thought he was emphasizing, emphasizing more in those discussions of violence was that, listen, he says, you know, there's no such thing as humanity and kindness when you're dealing with devils, right? He says, like, you can't, you shouldn't be protecting devils, right? So, so know when, know when you're, you need to distinguish between somebody who has ears for reason, who <laughs> is something, you know, can possibly hear you, for whom you your like you know your claims will be audible and know when those claims are going to fall on deaf ears and then something like force or something like that is necessary. Is that, does that make sense? It's not the yeah, violence yeah, per se. Yeah. It's not the destruction per se. It's it's the it's the lack of any alternative and knowing when there is no alternative. That's super interesting. It also reminded me. It made me think of like this question of like you know who's this written for and the possibility that at least as Rogers says in his essay that at least in part he is addressing himself to you know some set of white America as well. But maybe this is where a line is being drawn, like because there's a certain group of those people for whom he's he's just not interested in trying to speak to them. Right, that, that, mm. that there's not a conversation to be had. And I was think, I was reminded of like in imagining him addressing himself to 
to the, again the, the capacity for judgment and normative reasoning of this group of white Americans like you know I'm describing this situation for you doesn't it shock your conscience as well right like doesn't it don't you see what's wrong here and I was mm. like I just was so forcibly reminded of that amazing line by Stokely Carmichael when mm-hmm. he's asked about nonviolence. And I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, well, look, that's a good, that's a tactic that makes sense if your enemy has a conscience and the, and the United States has none. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. It's just, uh, th- there's like a yeah. way in which Walker here is, is doing both. I think interestingly, right. He's both like attempting to, to reach the conscience of those who can be reached and also recognize the necessity for the line in the sand beyond which violence will be necessary. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very sophisticated. It is. Yeah, it, there's some there's an um, exemplarity to it. And by that, I mean, it, it's following the sort of force of an example where he's selecting this saying, here's a moment where, you know, the horizon has been crossed. But that doesn't mean that he takes the example to be a general rule. Nowhere does he say, you know, so kill all white people. In fact, what you're su- probably supposed to um, effectively feel while witnessing that is, how can we have a state of affairs in which such violence is necessary? And so in that way, it's also supposed to shock the conscience. I imagine some white readers who, whether it's from fear of like, oh, I don't want to find myself to be, be the one caught up in the conspiracy of these people's freedom, but also look, if you call this a civil and rational society, why are people driven to such extremes? And if that shocks your moral sensibilities, then that should bring forth your political judgment of how did we create a political society in which it becomes actually impossible to live up to certain moral principles. It becomes contradictory insofar as you have a moral principle to be free. Walker is definitely in the tradition of you know, you're almost you you're compelled to be free. Like, you, you don't get to actually just deny your freedom and say, I will be a slave. And there's a, a long sort of history of that type of political thought in um, at least um, in pre-abolition black thought. Walker has an argument about this. Mariah Stewart has an argument about this, basically. A lot of them don't have much truck for people who are like, actually, I'm going to subordinate my freedom. They think that's a moral wrong to yourself mm. and to the, your nature. On the other hand... You have a moral principle not to do harm to others, not to subordinate others. And so a walker Mm -hmm. can use this example to say, look how irrational this society is. And of course, he lands on one side of that in that example. But I think that is another way of trying to draw forth the normative capacity and political judgment to say, how can you construct a coherent whole when you have these incompatible duties that are foisted upon a population? Yeah, it seems like to me that there's a tension that he's drawing out like right away that has a pretty long life in black political life. I mean, I just think about the different ways in which even Martin Luther King tried to thread this needle. Like he had a perspective on political change um, and is very famous for nonviolence. That's the Martin Luther King that most people are familiar with. And then there's the King that was thinking about the riots and understanding them as, you know, the famous quote, riots are the language of the oppressed. And so I think there's kind of ambivalence about, first of all, an acknowledgement that sometimes um, violence is necessary, not always, not maybe sometimes as a political strategy for others, but he kind of concedes that it might be kind of the inertia of an an unjust social structure is what is going to lead to violence. Mm -hmm. And I think it's there are multiple questions to ask, like, when is it appropriate as a political strategy? Is it ever blameworthy? Like, even if that 
way of thinking about it that it's the maybe some forms of violence are the language of the oppressed suggests that that kind of violence is not blameworthy but there might be other kinds that are if it's not exercised in good judgment so i just think that i guess maybe my original question about what's the worry here is it just seems like when people are worried it seems like we're talking about violence like in this undifferentiated way and there's actually lots of political and normative claims that are out there to be made and that have been made I really do think of the problem of, of violence is often taken in sort of, um, I, let's say, broader discourse. It's as if that's the place where if you need political judgment, that's where you're going to need it. But often we address it as this taboo of let's you know, pretend it's either not there or obviously it's clearly br- um, blameworthy. But you know, I think we do need to have political responses, political arguments and philosophical argumentation about, so what is the role of violence within? In a polity. You know, it seems like we've assented to some forms of violence in the polity, but how are they legitimate? And if the polity needs some sort of refoundation, well, you know, we all, I think all four of us have had enough of the sort of rosy idea of like, do what MLK did and give a great speech, you know, uh, on, on the steps uh, of Washington, D.C., tell people you have a dream and then watch all everything change. I think, you know, sometimes like people are looking for a precise, you know, formula. And I don't think violence, especially in a polity that is riven by division, riven by inconsistencies, you're not going to get that formula. And that's why I think you know, the sort of nature of this episode has been so much about judgment. That is what we need to cultivate. And I think for Walker, judgment is a habitual practice. It is something mm-hmm. that you need to constantly be training and working at rather than something you do as a one-off and then you're all right. Well, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and are really grateful for your support. We're shouting out our patrons 20 at a time until we're caught up, starting with our earliest supporters. So today, we would like to thank Josh Pointing, Francis Sen, Sam Nolan, Joshua Dunnigan, Adrian Bradley, Alexander Stoffel, Jonah, Matt McGarry, Drew Levanti, Tom Crowell, Eric Lee Warner, Ryan Fries, Mary LeBlanc, Farron Fick, Charles Conway, Nicholas Watkins, Cameron Duncan, Sean Sweeney Good, and J.M. Apologies for any mispronunciations, but we really so appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to support the show like those lovely people, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy and follow us on Twitter at leftofphil. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care. Thank you.